0: So we're continuing our series in this bigger umbrella question of what does it mean? And so we're looking at various topics from scripture, theology, church life, etc. And making sure we understand what these things mean. So I want to ask you today to turn to Romans 10. We'll come to the actual Bible reading part a little bit later on after a few introductory things here, but you'll see on the notes that I gave you at the top, it has the phrase gospel thinking. Pastor Kimbrough uses this phrase literally every week, like literally every week. Wednesday night in the prayer time, he may have said it a dozen times. On Wednesday night. And it's one of those phrases that really just rolls off the tongue, gospel thinking. But I wonder if we really understand what in the world he's talking about when he uses that phrase, gospel thinking. Um, It has, I think, been proven over this series, you know, what does it mean? That we've looked at various things that we talk about often and i think perhaps on the minister side of things we just simply take for granted that everybody understands and knows what we're talking about uh, only to come to find out people have really no earthly idea what we're talking about or people think a different thing than we mean and so it's important for us to understand what we're talking about Uh, There really is no profit in communication if the target um, does not understand what the speaker is saying. And so it's very important for us to always define our terms and be able to speak to one another clearly. Um, Sometimes we use phrases that maybe we, we think we understand what they mean, But then when we're put on the spot to define such a thing, kind of lost for words. We kind of generally think maybe we understand it, but then when we actually try to articulate it, we realize, huh, I might not understand as much of that as I think I do. And so this subject, gospel thinking, is is really massive. And there's a very real sense in which we dealt with all of this over a year ago now, in a series of Sunday school lessons that we did of um, the gospel, just really understanding and applying the gospel, uh, we did about I think I, while well, I look back and it's about I think it was 47 or 50 lessons that we went all through all various aspects of the gospel, various ramifications of the gospel, etc. And so, because we use this phrase so often, it is easy to assume that we all know what we're thinking about. Well, there is a sense in which you would say, well, gospel thinking really just means to think biblically. Well, think about that for just a moment. Is that really the same thing? When when Pastor Kimbrough says we need to have gospel thinking, could he just simply substitute we need to think biblically. Well, from one perspective, maybe, but I think no. It's it's way more than that. It, it's more than just thinking biblically. It's more than just proof texting. And so here's the decision. What justification do I have for this decision? This book, chapter, verse says this. Therefore, this decision is biblical, right? And so we can proof text our way through life, and you can get a concordance, and you can look up a verse for this, that, or the other thing, and justify really just about anything you want to justify if you, you know, find a Bible verse to support you. But yet somebody else is going to have a Bible verse that says the other thing, and they're going to also be claiming that they're thinking biblically because they have a Bible verse to to prove their decision, you have a Bible verse to prove your decision, and so now we're at odds with one another, both claiming to think biblically, but the whole time not having gospel thinking. All right. so what's the difference? And I don't think that we're necessarily splitting hairs uh, by saying gospel thinking is different than biblical thinking. Um, th- this could be something that to have a discussion about for a long, long time. But I want to break down a few things here. i put a little chart in your uh, notes. And so let's just walk through this just a little bit, just by way of comparison. Okay, so worldly thinking says I have to earn love. Whether it be I have to earn love from God or in my relationships, I have to earn love. And we all, because of our sinful nature, we all exist in performance-based relationships. In your marriage, you can fall into that danger of having a performance-based relationship. And with your friends, you can have a performance-based relationship. In that they, you know, the, the next one goes with it, you have to earn my love. In that, you know, they have to live up to my expectations for me to remain friends with them. And, or, if this person does not live up to my expectations, then I'm not going to pursue a friendship with them. They're not worthy of my friendship. Now, you might not say it exactly in those terms, but when it comes down to you know, the reality of what's going on, that is a worldly way of thinking as far as relationships go. And gospel thinking is something very different. It's coming to an understanding that, no, God loves me not based on anything that I have done. So I put the phrase there, God loves me unconditionally. God doesn't love me. God doesn't accept me because of my performance. He actually, he doesn't accept me because of my lack of performance. God accepts me. God loves me simply because he does. And it's grace, it's a work of grace that's been done in my heart, a work of grace been done in your heart, that enables you to love other people, not because of what they have done for you, regardless of their ability to do anything for you. You love them because you have made a choice to do so. And so, in a husband and wife relationship... Your spouse is going to let you down. Your spouse is going to hurt you. But yet, that doesn't change the matter of love if you really are, are thinking of that in gospel terms. Uh, the next little pair there is I deserve good things. Right? I don't deserve bad things to happen to me. I've done my part. I go to church, I read my Bible, I pray. And so, I deserve. Good things. And if you want something good from me, then you have to earn it. You have to earn good things from me. If you don't do something for me, then I'm not doing anything for you. That's worldly thinking. The opposite of that is an understanding that I deserve hell. I don't deserve anything other than God's wrath and punishment. And anything other than God's wrath and punishment is merciful and gracious and it's grace that enables me to give freely to those who I know can't give anything back to me, to do for others when I know they can't do for me. Worldly thinking is one of self-sufficiency. I don't need anybody's help. My inward strength is enough. I, I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I can, I can provide for me. I can look deep within. I've got the power deep within. And, you know, this is, this is Disney Pixar movies, right? You you have the power within yourself to accomplish anything you want to accomplish. But no gospel thinking realizes that we're wretched sinners. We're, we're undone. We're, we're unable to do anything for ourselves. We don't have any strength in ourselves. This last one might seem perhaps ironic in light of the, the fact that Worldly thinking says, I deserve, I deserve, I deserve, and worldly thinking says, I'm self-sufficient, I can do uh, everything myself. A corollary to that of worldly thinking is, I'm no good, I'm worthless. Well, no, that's not right thinking. Gospel thinking does not conclude that you are worthless. Gospel thinking comes to the conclusion, I'm complete in Christ. Left to myself, perhaps. But no, in Christ, I have all that I need. And so each of these comparisons, obviously, is worthy of far more explanation and, and far more discussion. But suffice it to say that, a, that gospel thinking really is a complete paradigm shift of the thinking of the old man, the, the old way of thinking. It's a complete paradigm shift that can only happen after a work of grace has been done in the heart. And an unregenerate person cannot think this way. Their thoughts have not been changed. They have not been renewed in the thinking of their mind, as Paul tells us in the book of Romans. So I want to look at an example of this from Romans 10, verses 1 to 3. Now, i admit I often don't just completely, absolutely, 100% plagiarize somebody else, but there was a... sermon I read read the whole thing but this part of it struck me in this context um, that was preached several years ago by John Piper I don't know exactly when or where it was preached but he made a point from this passage in Romans chapter 10 that I thought really was applicable in this whole bigger concept of thinking um, what is gospel thinking and he uses this illustration of the Jews and so let's read Romans 10 just these first 3 verses here. So Paul here is saying, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Now, when he's talking about Israel there, we have to stop here just a minute and understand some 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 context. Paul was part of Israel. Paul was a Hebrew. Paul was a Jew. And so this is what's on his heart, his fellow countrymen, other Jews. Now, in this, there's a distinction between the Gentiles that he was ministering to. But what he is having in mind here is his heart's desire, his prayer to God is for these self-righteous, hypocritical, unbelieving countrymen, fellow Jews, his kindred that they might be saved. And he says in verse 2, For I bear them record that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For, or read there, because, because they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. And so, as we break these verses down, there's just five simple points here. And first of all, we have to acknowledge that these people that Paul is talking about are people that do have a great zeal. They are people that are passionate, they're not lukewarm, if you will. They are zealous, they are passionate. And then, as we look at that zeal, we see what Paul says I bear them record, I can testify. This, you know, this is what Paul is saying. He says, you know, I look at these people and I can testify and I acknowledge, I'm, I'm happy to admit that these people have a zeal for God. It wasn't just an aimless zeal. It wasn't, in one sense, well, it was misdirected, but it wasn't an aimless zeal. It was a zeal for Jehovah. They were zealous for God. You know, Paul could say this with firsthand knowledge because Paul used to be in their shoes. Paul was a man who was zealous for God. Paul was extremely zealous, so zealous that he, before his conversion, was thoroughly convinced as a trained Jew, as a, as a highly educated Jew, a Pharisee of the Jews, he was thoroughly convinced that what he was doing was doing God a favor in killing these Christians. Killing these that had departed from the one true and the living God. Maybe a little point of context here to understand. These Jews were looking at the Christians as those who had forsaken monotheistic Judaism. They were worshiping Jesus. And they understood Jesus to not be God. And so that was the criticism. They, These that had converted to Christianity and had decided to follow Christ, it was the opinion of these Jews that they had forsaken Jehovah and were serving someone else. Now, we know that's not the case. We know that Jesus is God in the flesh, and they were monotheistic. We understand the Trinity. But that was the perspective Right? And so Paul was zealous that these had forsaken Jehovah and, and they have to be dealt with. And I am God's right hand, I'm God's instrument until it was conversion and he realized something very, very different. So they had a zeal and their zeal was for Jehovah, but look at number three there in your notes, their zeal for God was not based on right thinking. So look at what it says there. In verse 2, for I bear them record that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They didn't understand. They weren't thinking right. That, their, their thinking was messed up. Piper, just to put a little quotation here of what he says, he says, the furnace of their hearts is burning, but the fuel is not the fuel of truth. The mind has failed to provide the fuel of truth, And the heart is aflame with a false view of God. This is a segment of the whole church today. There is a zeal, but not according to knowledge. There's a zeal without truth. There's a zeal, you know, we we use a phrase sometimes, it's a mile wide but an inch deep, right? Now, were that we a mile wide, you know, there's something we might in our spiritual pride say, well, we're not shallow like that. We have depth. Well, I don't think there's any benefit in being a mile deep and an inch wide, right? Could we be a mile wide and a mile deep, right? Could, could we have a mile wide zeal and a mile depth theology and a mile depth understanding and not be shallow but yet still have all the zeal? I think one of our problems is we are very proud of ourselves for being quite so deep. But yet where's the zeal? Right? We're an inch wide, mile deep. And, and, and I don't think there's any great benefit to that. Neither is there any benefit of being a mile wide and an inch deep. Right? We have to have truth, but yet can we not have zeal and truth at the same time? And I think this is what Paul is arguing for to a degree here. And so the conclusion Paul comes to, because you know, he bears them record, they have this zeal, but this zeal is not according to truth They don't have gospel thinking. Paul's conclusion about them is that they're not saved because he's praying that they might be. That's his heart's desire, that they be truly converted and come to Christ. And so it is possible to have a zeal for God and yet be unsaved. Now, that's the illustration that he uses here. So now we leave Piper alone and move on to the text and look at this a little bit more closely. Why is it? What is the reason that they have this great zeal for God, but their thinking is all wrong? Well, Paul tells us what wrong thinking they have. Look in verse 3. They're ignorant of God's righteousness. This is the crucial crux of the matter. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is why their thinking is wrong. This is why they're not saved. They're ignorant of God's righteousness. And because they're ignorant of God's righteousness, they're trying to replace that with something else. So it says they're going about to establish their own righteousness. And in doing that, look at the end of verse 3, they're not submitting themselves to the righteousness of God. Whose righteousness are they submitting themselves to? They're submitting themselves to their own standard. That's legalism, straight up. That's the standard that they have adopted for themselves. And legalism says, basically, I set the standard, and I meet my standard. You don't meet my standard, but I meet my standard. You're never good enough unless you live up to my standard. And God's standard, who cares about it? But the false thinking is, Well, my standard is obviously God's standard. And so the legalist simply redefines what God's standard is and defines it in his own terms and therefore is able to live up to it and therefore is able to claim holiness, righteousness, etc. And so that is the very definition of worldly thinking. Right, so So that kind of mindset, that kind of mentality really is the summary of that little chart, the left-hand side, worldly thinking. And so the central issue really becomes the doctrine of justification by faith alone and an understanding of imputed versus earned righteousness. If you live in a world that you have created where you can earn righteousness, then that is worldly thinking. Regardless of your profession, if if you are even if I'll I'll put it lowercase L legalist, that's worldly thinking. Understanding the ramifications of, impu- of imputed righteousness and understanding those ramifications and applying them to every area of life really is the summary of that right hand column, gospel thinking. Okay, so let's look at some practical applications of that and how it plays out in real life. And so I've got, what do I have, five here, six, six practical applications. So first of all, your eternal welfare depends on it. Um, You you cannot be saved if you think that you can earn and work your way to heaven. You are not not saved if that is your thinking. Now, let's, let's set that aside. And let's look at it perhaps in more practical terms that genuine believers guilty of and that is a way of thinking that we are accepted by God because of the work of Christ yes but that only gets us to heaven and God tolerates us God tolerates me God will let me into heaven because of Christ. But I still have to do. I still have to perform in order for God, in order for me to feel accepted by God. Right? Your eternal welfare ultimately depends on your understanding of gospel truth and gospel thinking. The second one is your view of God depends on gospel thinking as well. And this ties into what I just said. You know, many have, many, many church people, many very well-meaning church people, view God as a heavenly father, yes, but as one who is very stern, as one who is in heaven looking down on us poor souls, just waiting for one of them to mess up, so that he can pop them, right? It's like a, a, you know, a stern father, a stern mother, you know, don't make me come back there. Kind of attitude that that God has. You know, God doesn't stop and count to three. Right? That, that's that's not the way God is. God is not in heaven just looking and waiting for one of us to mess up so that he can pounce on us. If we understand the gospel correctly, and if we really have gospel thinking, then we understand rightly that we stand before God on the merits of Christ alone. We don't stand before God on our own merits. And if we understand the nature of God through the lens or maybe the word filter, through the filter of gospel thinking, we really come to understand in the depth of our soul that as one who has been regenerated by grace, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. God is not looking to pounce you. Now, we can kind of time out here for just a moment. And lest I be misunderstood... We're not saying that God never punishes one of His children. If God never punishes you, then you are not one of His children. That's what the book of Hebrews tells us. So God does punish His children, but how does He do it? He doesn't do it in wrath. He doesn't do it in anger. He doesn't do it with any malice. He doesn't do it to get revenge You know, this is where parenting often takes a left turn and becomes sinful. When we discipline our children in anger. Or when we discipline our children for revenge. Now, that might sound funny to you. But your kid acts a fool at the grocery store. And embarrasses you at the grocery store. And you wait till we get home. And the whole ride home, you're just humiliated at how embarrassing that was for your kid to scream and pitch a fit in the floor of Walmart because he didn't get the Transformer toy or whatever he wanted, and that's embarrassing, and I'm going to punish you for embarrassing me. And you get home and you spank your child. Really, it's just out of revenge because they embarrassed you. And the heart of the matter is not my child... Broke the law of God. My child didn't honor his father and mother. My child exhibited a heart that is full of covetousness. And I'm disciplining my child because I love my child. And God says, thou shalt not covet. And my child coveted. And I'm God's God-given instrument to discipline this child. And I'm disciplining this child for coveting. Not for making me look bad. Not for embarrassing me at the store, but because my child broke God's law. And I don't want my child to break God's law. I want my child to love God and obey God. Now, we're kind of rabbit trail off the point here. But coming back to, to this. If we understand how God disciplines us, then we understand the nature of God, that God deals with us as his people In love, in grace, and in mercy. That doesn't mean that he sweeps our sin under the rug. That doesn't mean that we can sin and get a free pass. It doesn't mean any of those things. It means God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, yes. But God is faithful and just also to keep his word to punish and discipline those that are his. But he does it in a way that is perfect, right, and loving. Not out of anger, not out of wrath, not out of revenge, not out of malice. Moving on, we have to finish here. Third, your prayer life depends on gospel thinking. Why are you accepted when you pray? You know, Wednesday night at the prayer meeting, why are you accepted in your prayers? Because you did something good on Wednesday that made you worthy of praying? No. You know and I've used this illustration so many times you guys have heard me say this 20 times. you know how many how often does it come to a Wednesday night prayer meeting and man, you blew it, messed up, all kinds of bad Tuesday, Wednesday, Monday, whatever, and you're still kind of reeling over it. how could I have been so stupid? How could I have ever done that? I'm so sorry, that's awful. that's not me. I shouldn't have done it. And you come to the prayer meeting, and the whole time the prayer meeting is going on, you're really not listening to anybody pray. You're just remembering that stupid thing you did, that sin you did, and how awful it was, and I can't pray in light of that. Well, what is that? That's Romanism. That's performance-based religion. That's works-based religion. That's not gospel thinking at all. Gospel thinking says... I confess my sins and I've been forgiven. You know, last week when we were talking about um, communion and what to do after communion, and we were dealing with some of that context of uh, renewing our vows to the Lord and um, humbling ourselves before the Lord. And in some of that context, I asked the question how many times do you need to repent of sin? Well, one time, just one time. And if you've repented of your sins and God has forgiven you of your sins and then later Satan brings it up and you feel guilty and you're praying again, you know, that last week, Lord, I'm, please forgive me. You know, not to be irreverent, but there's a sense in which God responds to you and says, I don't even know what you're talking about. That sin is cast as far as the east is from the west. That sin's forgiven, forgotten. Let's move on. right? But we hold on to things, and it influences so much of our life because we're not thinking gospel thoughts in that context. And so therefore, we don't pray. We feel embarrassed to pray. We feel unworthy to pray. You know, are you worthy to pray? Of course not. But yet, let me ask the question again. Are you worthy to pray? Absolutely. Because you have the imputed righteousness of Christ. The very moment that God casts Christ out of his presence is the exact same moment that he will cast you out of his presence. And until he casts Christ out of his presence, he won't cast you out of his presence. If you are in Christ. Because your righteousness is not your own. Your righteousness is Christ's. And so as you stand before God in the righteousness of Christ, you're accepted. You're accepted in the beloved. And so we come to the Lord and we, that's why we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Because we come in his merits. And so if we really have right gospel thinking when it comes to our praying, we can come boldly to the throne of grace even if you sinned all kinds of bad, right? When, when David sinned with Bathsheba, did he shy away from the throne of grace? No, the Lord dealt with him in such a way that brought him to a place of humility and repentance. And where did he go? He, he, he ran to the Lord. You know, we sing that hymn sometimes, I run to Christ. And that's what we have to do. So the fourth one, your marriage depends on gospel thinking. A lot of this overlaps, obviously, does it not? Your marriage would be greatly benefited if you would seek to apply the truths of the gospel to it. How often do you as you know, one half of the relationship, a spouse, and for you young people here that aren't married, just substitute the word relationship for marriage. Substitute the word friendship for marriage. It, it applies the same way. But how often do you get upset at your spouse for something and you stew over it and you're self-justified. You know, I have a right to be angry. I have a right to be upset at my spouse because of what they did. Well, do you really? You know, we, we get displeased or upset at a spouse, at a friend, whatever, because they don't live up to our expectations. They don't do the thing that we want. Well, think about it in these gospel terms. When have you ever lived up to God's expectations? You know, in and of yourself. When have you ever lived up to God's expectations? And the answer is, well, you never have. And so, does God stay angry and bitter and mad at you because of some little thing you did? No. He forgives us. He loves us. And so if we if we dealt with our spouses in that same way, if we dealt with our spouses, even in gospel thinking, this is a little bit different from god god i don 't don 't misconstrue this. God does not give us the benefit of the doubt i 'm not saying that, but if we viewed our spouse in this gospel thinking, and when our spouse did something, we gave them the benefit of the doubt, understanding you know, I know they love me, and that thing they just did hurt me, but yet I know they love me, and so I know they didn't mean to hurt me, and even if in a moment of weakness they did mean to hurt me, I forgive them. And my assumption is they didn't mean to hurt me, and so whatever they said... Maybe I misconstrued it. Maybe I misinterpreted it. And even though I'm the one hurt, I'm going to be the one to go and seek to reconcile. Right? That's gospel, a gospel way of thinking in a marriage, a gospel way of thinking in relationships. The next one, number five, We're almost out of time here. Your counseling depends on gospel thinking. And so you might have a friend come to you with a problem. And whether you like it or not, you're a counselor. You might not view yourself that way. But when you talk to anybody about problems, you're a counselor. You're either a good counselor or a bad counselor. You either give them good advice or you give them bad advice. And if you're not permeated with gospel thinking, you're going to end up giving bad advice. Because inevitably in their problem, if you're not thinking gospel thinking, if your, your mind is not permeated this way, then the solution that you give is going to eventually circle around to them looking back at themselves. And that's not gospel thinking. Gospel thinking doesn't call us to look within for help. Gospel thinking is not introspective no gospel thinking looks outside of self it looks away from self and it looks to Christ and so if you in in counseling your friend and helping your friend and talking to your friend through a problem and you point them to you know their standing and position in Christ the nature of God as a loving heavenly Father what it I'm repeating myself, but what it means to be in Christ and united to him and the unchangeable nature of God, one who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable to deal with all the problems of life. You point people outside of themselves and you point people to Christ. And if you're thinking that way, dealing with your own problems, and you counsel other people that way, dealing with their problems, you are, in fact manifesting right gospel thinking. It's the fact that the truth of imputed righteousness is a powerful tool for the Christian counselor. Now, maybe you're dealing with an unsaved person that comes to you for counsel and help with a problem. Well, we help people with their temporal needs, but think about the fact that sometimes in dealing with unsaved people and their problems... Yeah, we pass out band-aids and, and we're trying to help temporal problems, but make sure that you're not satisfied with giving somebody a band-aid whose head has been cut off. Right? They're they're dead in trespasses and sins, they're bleeding to death because they're outside of Christ. And yes, we can give practical wisdom from Scripture that will deal with this temporal thing, but you need to be born again. And that leads to the last one of evangelism here, obviously. A weak view of the gospel is going to lead to weak evangelism. A view of the gospel that says, you know, I'm afraid to talk to people about the Lord because I don't know what to say. And what if I say the wrong thing? What if I don't, what if I'm not convincing enough? What if I start to quote a verse and forget half of it and that would be embarrassing? And worldly thinking in this context, views evangelism is it's about me. It's about my performance. It's about my, you know, thespian skills in presenting truth that is going to convince this person that they need Jesus. Well, no, gospel thinking humbles oneself before the Lord and says, Lord, I don't know what I'm doing, but I need help. I need your spirit to come and fill me. I need your spirit to open their heart. I need your spirit to give me the words to say. And gospel thinking also understands, you know, if if God can save me, Save anybody. You know, I heard somebody say one time about another person. If there's ever been anybody lost, it's them. How proud and arrogant is that statement? If there's ever been anybody lost, it's them. How lost were you then? Were you not as lost as they were? Really? That's ridiculous. If there's ever been anybody lost, it's me. Me? Right? This is Paul's attitude, was he not? I'm the chief of sinners? I'm the, I'm the chief of sinners? This is what Paul is saying. If there's ever been anybody lost, it was me. That's real gospel thinking and perspective on other people. I'm more lost than they ever... you know. I was way more lost than they'll ever be. And if the Lord can save me, he can save them. He can work in their heart because he worked in mine. And so no case is too far gone. So a proper view of the gospel emboldens us even to tell the very worst of sinners to repent and believe the gospel, to come to Christ. And so ultimately gospel thinking is accomplished by a work of grace in the heart, plain and simple. It requires a knowledge of scripture. It requires a knowledge of God. It requires humility to see ourselves as God sees us, and it also calls us to rejoice in justifying righteousness that gives us peace with God. And so I trust the Lord will help with this. Uh, uh, maybe you already understood everything that I said. Um, I hope I simply reminded you of things you already know, um, or perhaps you've heard that phrase, gospel thinking, and kind of thought maybe I understand, but now hopefully we have a better understanding and very practical ways to take this and live out what it actually means and looks like in real life to have gospel thinking. So, amen. Let's close in prayer here and prepare for the service. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for your word that calls us to humble ourselves before you. And we pray that you would continue to help each one of us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We pray that you would save us even from that wrong way of thinking where we would go about to establish our own righteousness, that we would somehow lift ourselves up and pat ourselves on the back for the good things we have done, but instead to humble ourselves before you. We pray that you'll. Be with Pastor Kimbrough as he preaches this morning. We ask that you'll fill him with your spirit for the message as he continues this series in the book of Romans. Pray that you'll bless our time together. Bless the singing, praying, reading of Scripture, all the means of grace. We ask that you'll bless them to us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.